Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Peter Jukes. Peter is a dramatist, screenwriter and a journalist who came into journalism about 10 years ago covering the phone hacking scandal. Peter then co-founded Byline Times, a new media organisation that sits with the landscape of legacy media in the UK, exposing corruption and collusion in the Tory party, between media organisations, between politics and media, and investigating the impact of a media monopoly on British democracy. I write for the Byline Times and I so enjoy working with Peter and with the editor-in-chief Hardeep Matharu. I find that the Byline Times is willing to publish news reports that also include analysis rather than purely objective stenography. And I'm so impressed by how they have isolated certain issues, such as the legacy of empire, such as the monopolization of the media market, and such as the climate emergency, and push these issues every day. What's even more amazing is that the core team is very, very small. You wouldn't think it looking at their website, but it's a very small core team bolstered by 600 freelancers like myself. And I can't speak for all of those freelancers, but I would certainly say that coming across Byline Times was like finally finding a home for my journalism in a media landscape that typically is just not interested in reporting on the bigger picture. Peter and I have a wonderful conversation. He explains the impact of market forces on media, the history of market forces, also draws in the 2008 financial crash, revealing how oligarchic capitalism has taken hold of our national and global economy, producing what he calls zombie economics and an inequitable distribution of power that is threatening democracies. He talks about separating market from capitalism and the fluidity of capitalism as it continues to evolve, explaining how younger generations are now finding different ways of experimenting with markets in order to fulfill their individual needs, the needs of their communities, and also in a bid to exit the system that extracts and exploits and frankly offers less to less people every day. He explains the role of byline times within the media ecosystem in the UK, or perhaps out with the media system in the UK, revealing how the legacy press has done their best to undermine, disparage and even attack Byline Times as this new organisation has investigated the links between politics and media. We talk about the institutional inertia of even centrist or left-wing publications within the UK, those who are not yet owned by Murdoch, before Peter explains the complexity of Byline Times, which is that they refuse to take one ideological stance, instead allowing for a pluralism, which, as Peter says, is not a form of ideology, but a forum for ideology. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here. 
So we are going to talk about what's going on in the media, but I'm going to pose you the first general question that I pose everyone, which is why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Oh my God, let's start off with an easy question <laughs> and something you can answer in a lifetime. <laughs> uh, I, we are just, the obvious um, thing, which obviously you are an expert on, uh, is the climate emergency and our reliance for 200 years, growing reliance on fossil fuels, extractive industries, and I'd say inequality, which means you have an unsustainable pattern of growth. Uh, and where occasionally in moments like post-war, you get a, a, a more equal distribution of income and then the oligarchs and people want inequality and you get this, yeah, basic society of not even aspiration of envy, of increased consumption, models of consumption on Instagram, you know, on housing, whereby everybody wants to go up, consume more, take more, and with number of people on the planet that are limited resources to do that. There are, so that's, that scarcity meeting greed and inequality. I think that is, you need both together. Um, then I think more, more pressing, more, more, you know, closer in terms of history is what happened in 2008. You basically had commodities flowing over from China, you had a manufacturing base, base large in China, but in other countries, particularly in Asia. Um, and consumer societies like America and the UK funding in a way their growth, devastating their own national, national industries, and therefore creating a situation where all the cash was in these countries who then they're lent back to places like America. And you had a liquidity overabundance. Because of consumption, you didn't have, uh, that money was washing around too much for other current state for investment, investment in new technologies or whatever, and finance. So therefore was laundered into these credit fault swaps, classified debt obligation, whereby money was loaned irresponsibly combined with historical effects like 9-11 and the war on terror, which meant green scan put interest rates to zero. So you really had this financialization of many economies, particularly in the West, was a result of the superabundance of unproductive cash. A lot of it just went into asset appreciation. So like classic sort of 17th century Sicily, it was just squatting on rents, on literally on rents when it came, comes to London property, but also to IP. You basically had a crisis in another crisis and another form of capitalism. Capitalism keeps on evolving. You can't just call it capitalism all the time. It might be, you know, it's just, it's too indistinct. Um, and, uh, really a dry, a stasis in the Western economy growth at cost, environmental cost, cost of inequality, cost of child and slave labor, uh, in developing and brick punches. And that crashed in 2008, as I said, partly because of the war on terrorism, interest rates, partly because of the inequality of the system, particularly between China and the US, and China having all this cash which had to go up. Since then, uh, we've had zombie economies in many ways, and it's very sad to see somebody like my son, who's just bought a house, I've got a granddaughter, used to this sort of zero interest rates. Obviously, there weren't zero interest rates. The government was lending through quantum easing, 
to banks, money at basically zero. And they were creaming off like 6% because they were underwater, because the model was unsustainable. And the, the way over the banking crisis was the lender, the last resort was the state pushing cheap cash to save the banks who then got out of their underwater situation, but then beguiled and misled the population to expect these low interest rates. This is happening now coming to a crisis here because rates are going up to what I was used to when I bought a house, like it briefly up at 12%. And you never get out the mortgages. We have, and you know, in the UK, this is aggravated by the housing scarce. So without saying all capitalism and markets are bad, because I don't think they are, it's too indistinct. This financialized form of late capitalism is in crisis. One solution to this, one solution to the fossil fuel-based countries like Saudi Arabia or indeed Russia is to go the full hog to oligarchy and a securitized state. And there you have a model, which obviously always in Saudi briefly looked like Russia might break away, where there is a complete, you know, reliance on fossil fuel industries. And with extractive industries, it seems to me, this kind of social structure also obtained, where you have, because you sit on land, you're really sitting on uh, resources. They're owned by individuals or company. It isn't reliant on the creativity, the productivity of labor. It's mm. really reliant too much on your consumer market either, and their well-being. It tends towards uh, oligarchy. Now, these oligarchs, kleptocrats, then needed the Western system to launder their money, effectively, and to spend it, to buy their yachts, to go to Monte Carlo. To, and, and I think, and I was talking to... Yeah, very senior financial journalists about what happened with like certain UK hedge funds. And they gravitated to hedging of Cayman Islands, Turks and Caicos, Kits and the Britain's ex-empire becomes an offshore archipelago of dark money. The shadow banking system is getting as big as the actual banking system. And a lot of the phenomena, many of the phenomena, received from Brexit, Trump, to oh, oh, so many things are because that post-war consensus of money regulation exchange rates broke up in the 80s and now led to this shadow world where a lot of the money, a lot of it legally gained, uh, is unaccountable, uh, un can't regulate it, and is hidden behind these offshore accounts, who then, of course, come back. They may be on the Isle of Man. I could mention somebody who couldn't vote in the Brexit referendum, but funded a lot of it a guy called Jim Mellon based in the Isle of Man. He couldn't go to the Isle of Man. They, the powerful gravitational influence of that dark, unaccountable money, which is asset-seeking, is seeking basically profiteering, isn't invested in productive behavior, distorts economies. Robert Mueller, hedge fund owner, Renaissance Trente, you know, funds Trump, all these hedge fund owners funding Johnson and Brexit. They don't want regulation. They don't believe in the society of nations. They probably don't believe that most humanity should survive. You know, famously, Peter Thiel are alleged to believe in this kind of long-termism where the population of the world will just be a few billion. Of course, they will be among that billion who survive. <laughs> All this interesting. Um, <laughs> and uh, there are many forces leading to a structural crisis, which you know better about than I do when it comes to the climate emergency. Uh, people don't hear about it which adds to the problem because one of the first things these oligarchs do 
as Paul Marshall when he made with his partner 350 million on the Brexit referendum, having persuaded Go, Michael Go to back Brexit. They go into media, he, you know, funded uh, GB News, Chandler, I'm not a hedge fund owner, but he's another uh, foreign investor, heavily invested in Russia, funds the Gartum, which funds GB News. Paul Marshall has currently bidding for the Telegraph. Uh, he certainly uh, owns his fund, he funds to a charity, Unheard. That So they get with all this money to therefore stop other people hearing about what they're doing and the damage they're doing. If you look at a classic revolution, the first thing be tanks on the lawn of the, of the uh, television stations, the radio stations. Now, this coup is more silent, but the ownership of media, the promulgation through deceptive automated means of false information on social media, all these are, what they say, you know, morbid symptoms of the 21st century capitalism, and I'd say this particular kind of capitalism, which is oligarch, oligarchical concentration. Now, oligarchs own the papers, you know. Um, I'd always say the thing about Boris Johnson or Donald Trump is, well, wasn't that they were oligarchs, is they wanted to be oligarchs. They hung around with oligarchs. They wanted the Learjets. They wanted the Palazzos in Umbria. They wanted this range of power. And so there, you know, that is the focus. Politics is there to be manipulated by the super rich. We're not talking about the upper middle class. We got billionaires, people who actually afford to live in central London. Uh, and this isn't an entirely new phenomenon because when Plato was talking about his republic and his philosopher kings running uh, society, he, was, he also you know, thought about democracy. And he said, well, democracy is great. It's a great idea. It'll always get taken over by oligarchs. And, I, and Thomas Piketty, or the economists looking at the skew of money, both in media, in terms of lobbying, in terms of tax relief, in terms of the focus of the polity of places like US and UK on these super rich and the way they get poor people to vote for them. That has become acute and stops our society probably from things like the climate. That was incredibly eloquent. Thank you very much. <laughs> I suppose I'd like to talk about the market forces then and media. Let, let's stick with the media tranche, obviously. So, uh, yes, capitalism keeps evolving. It would be wrong to call it still capitalism. I was, I was interviewing economist James Meadway recently. He was talking about now we're entering into a form of state capitalism, as you see Biden's Inflation Reduction Act bringing industry home, not leaving it up to market forces anymore. And certainly when we live in a world where there is, I think, uh, $12 trillion of subsidies paid annually into different industries, which would actually mean that our global economy is shrinking. We don't have a form of capitalism that economists like to promote from their you know, ivory towers. Nonetheless, it seems that the if, oligarch, if, if oligarchs can take over democracy by taking over the narrative arc and controlling the messaging that goes to the public, the one sort of entryway allowing that is the private ownership of media. Isn't it? Well, this is where I came into media and mm. we came into journalism. Um, and I, well, I fought some of my friends on the left who, and, and Lenin got this wrong. I think what goes wrong with Lenin, he said all markets lead to concentration. There's no reason, right? If we don't look at the market properly, 
it does get distorted and goes. Adam Smith, you know, founder of Market Theory, says the special problem of markets is monopoly, hmm. monopoly power. Now, I came at this uh, through, through media, so um, I one of the reasons I stopped writing for TV, TV drama, is I called out the fact that seventy percent of UK drama was commissioned by the BBC, not state controlled, but licensed and uh, you know uh, a kind of power a not-for-profit body, as it were. And no matter how great that one person in control of Central Tether Drama would be, that was wrong compared to America, the 27 buyers of drama. And I noted how the narrative stories out of that more diverse system, The Wire, was a much, and The Sopranos were much more innovative. Writers had more power. They had much more diverse. The storylines much more complicated than this top-down central thing. Now, it was the longest career suicide note in history. I didn't work for BBC Drama again after that. And I became a journalist. And I became a journalist that I much more enjoyed because I could tell the truth rather than go to the commissioners. And then when the Murdoch phone hacking scandal came along, I properly became a journalist at the Daily Beast. And then you know, wrote a book and live tweeted the phone hacking trial. I saw, look, it's not just that Rupert Murdoch is a hyper-conservative. Uh, and we could talk about, you know, the, you know, the attempted insurrection in Jan 6 and what he did there. It's that he... It has monopoly power in the market, which leads to abuse and carbon up. And that was confirmed during the phone hacking trial when one of the senior executives, financial executive, confirmed to me, yeah, Murdoch, before closure of news in the world, had 40% of the circulation, but 50% of the revenue. Mm. Now, markets, the problem with markets is domination, monopoly, and no access to the market. I mean, market doesn't need to be capitalistic. You know, even in communist states, you still need somewhere to trade. And, you know, you, you know, the price fixing through the market is better than some, you know, some commissar fixing it somewhere. But it also leads to this thing called monopsony, is that he's the monopsy buyer of journalism. You know, if Murdoch owned so much of the press and was trying to buy the biggest paper TV broadcast, the Sky at that point, or own it entirely, then your chances of having to work for him were very, very high, which meant abuse would happen, cover up would happen. And I, obviously, personally, I inveigh against Murdoch's hyper-conservative beliefs. But I do think one of the ways you can affect change this way, and I'd say this to sort of right-wing folks, look, he tends to be a free marketeer everywhere he cheats. He games the regulator. And this is very common, by the way. This is what fossil fuel industry does. He'll kind of get close to Tony Bear, ask him to do him a favor. Uh, he will threaten other politicians with exposure if they don't do what they want. You have that big seven-foot high safe in the sun. Um, so they are gaming the regulator, and they pretend to be free market. They're completely anti-competitive. They can't abide a free market. They're oligarchs. They want to dominate. They're monopolists. Likewise, Murdoch always says, you know, I hate the royal family. I'm not a, I'm a Republican. Yet, what does he want to do? Create a dynasty. Mm -hmm. You hit them at their contradictions. And I do think one of, especially with fossil fuel industry, though it's harder because the hierarchies, the huge sort of extractive, or huge hierarchies of those extractive industries, uh, is you can use competition progressively. But that's, this is why the way, you know, and I think we're facing social media, is what Theodore Roosevelt did turn of the century in America, trust busting the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Standard oil own the oil fields, own the railways. We're buying up the newspaper that you use antitrust legislation, anti-monopolistic legislation to break up the corporate power of these, 
you know, because they get inefficient if they become monopolies, they get abusive. And, and finally, on this thought, when 2008 happened and, you know, it was danger the cash machines would stop into Amsterdam or the boats were, you know, outside the port, couldn't get the bills of lading in. There was danger of social, huge social upheaval. The, the state stepped in, the lender of the last resort, you know, the Fed, the Bank of England, they saved too big to fail the bank. But what did that tell the oligarchs? I mean, if you've been, I didn't like it in the eighties, a lot of my, you know, school, my colleagues at university went into finance and shares and I thought it's all a bit dodgy, but, um, they thought I'll go and I'll come become a businessman or woman and make my money for myself and that maybe pay less tax. Right. But I'll sure. After 2008, any calculating, I wouldn't say moral, but cal, you know, rationally calculating self-interested businessman would go, what am I doing here in the, in the free market where I could get taken over or I could lose money? The thing to do is go and invade the state. That's where the money is. This precedent, by the way, had been set in Russia and other countries with the KGB and organized crime basically taking over the assets of the uh, Russian Federation. But you can see it in politics, top street, see it at the trajectory of many. You go, well, you know, why, why risk it? Why not cozy up to an MP, cozy up to parliament? You might get an OBE or a lordship, but you'll probably get a really nice contract. Mm. Uh, and the, the, it's corporatism. You know, this is what the free market, right, should, you know, Tuffman Street, Adam Smith Foundation, this should be their core celeb. Of course compromised, they don't do anything about it. They benefit from it. So I do think that is an attack on to open up markets, you know, barriers to entry, education, health. It can't be a fair market if some people are penalized because their education, their family they're born to, or their health conditions or what region of the UK they are born up in. That is not a market which is going to let people shine in their talents. And I, and I think there is a a language of aspiration, a language of fairness and freedom, which doesn't always need to be attached to the state. You know, my brother said, ah, oh, anarcho-syndicalist on this, though he was opinions directly, is that there is a way of looking at markets of removing the power of accumulated capital, uh, you know, attriting it and getting more freedom, freedom for, to unleash fairly the talents and resources of individuals and groups in civil society. And these are the kind of conversations which I think your generation are having. I think they will need to be had as, you know, I'm, yeah, I do believe that zero, I, there are classic forms of growth that have not worked. They have not led to human happiness. Uh, obviously in, you know, developing, developed countries, there has brought up the standard of living, but you know, and that is not in itself a bad thing, but is that sustainable? Can that move to population stability? Can it lead to a quality of life as a martyr's sense? So it's, you know, the measurement of human happiness isn't your GDP. And I feel your generation who couldn't be up is like my generation be, can't look forward to speculating on house prices just because of shortage and also have an economy thanks to some good elements of new technology that enables sharing, enables you not to have to own a car or even your own bike, that they tend to allow you to, you know, um, to, to, to reduce the impetus of ownership. And instead, look more the benefits of use. That I think there's hope there. 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's very interesting, sort of the imaginative capacity of younger generations that have been unleashed by sort of most of our options being taken away from us. <laughs> and I think I have to say, I think Gen Z are doing it better. It's very interesting to see the difference between millennials and Gen Z. Like I remember being brought up with the belief that the world was my oyster, especially because of, you know, my class position, my privilege, all that. Um, and then everything changing once I went to university after 2008, the financial crash, nobody being able to get graduate jobs. And I think millennials still have that bitter taste of, oh, we remember what we could have had. Whereas Gen Z, born into a world where they were never promised those kinds of things, they're just exiting the system. I mean, it's, so many millennials are still sort of chipping away, trying to save it. And Gen Z are just like, not interested, off to do something else, quite frankly. It's amazing and, how much they've educated themselves. And, and having been through the born in the like, 60s, the kind of dreams that my brother was before he was a finance director, was a hippie. Look like Jesus Christ. Hmm. The dreams of the 60s, crashes of the 70s, and then the yuppiedom of the 80s. I see my whole generation very early. We're told, you know, oh, it's all great, be a punk, it's all free. Oh, get a mortgage, you know, get into property now. Completely contradictory messages. And I can see their trajectory. And they didn't make them happy. I mean, it's easy to say, isn't it? You know, you, oh, you have a house, dad, you know. But I, the freedoms you can have once you drop out of this expectation that materially you've got to do better than your parents. Now, I knew when I went to a state school, you know, the car, in council house, I knew I'd do better than my mom. It's very, very difficult for my kids to know they'll do better in terms of housing, though I don't think it's sustainable. And when all those boomers try to sell houses, somebody's got to buy and the price will drop. But that, that aside and the trickle down of inheritance, um, we know it didn't work. And this pathway to growth, this sort of assumption, always more, always more things. I've always, I've, for the last 20 years, I've been slimming down, getting smaller and smaller places, getting rid of more and more things. And same with mother, my kids, uh, she's done that. She's just downsized, downsized. Uh, I think we've learned a hard lesson of which your generation and see a pang. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, and I feel it all over the place. The block is, isn't it? It's those in power, those are sponsored by the fossil fuel industry. People, so what point does this, the attitudes of people are not greedy, are not, I don't think this as greedy as the yeah, oligarchs. The oligarchs are competing with oligarchs. They're scared. They need their lawyers. They need their yachts. There is classic line, isn't it? Um, Gandhi, you know, there's not enough, there's plenty enough for every man's hunger, but not enough for one man's greed, uh, but where this comes to a head, where the critical turnaround comes and maybe already happening with the British economy, I mean, these are, um, interest rate rises are devastating and, and hopefully there won't be repossessions, but that will, I remember the nineties, it will hit the market and we'll suddenly look at our flats. They're not worth so much. Great. Bloody great. I mean, you know, you shouldn't be living. Your house shouldn't be a bank account where you're speculating to sell totally. on to somebody else. Totally. Um, uh, and, and in terms of the climate emergency, you know, and the crisis we're seeing even this summer, there has to be a point where a tipping point in human consciousness, I think, you know, and, uh, if not, we'll be forced to a tipping point. Now, I just think the danger though, is it with it? And it's only one danger is that, you know, the kind of, one nation, some elements in the middle of them might go, oh, you're using the climate crisis to put communism in place, right? You don't believe in markets. 
you don't believe in private property and you want to take over the world, Greta Thunberg is going to tell people what they can have. Help. It's just completely ridiculous. But sometimes some people do because of the, the loose and, um, yeah, imprecise and varying nature of capitalism. The capitalism in China is very different capitalism here in Russia at the moment, you know, because it's all a bit generalized. The danger, you know, and people say, yes, the climate climate is proving that capitalism doesn't work. Yeah, well, it's, it's proving that 200 years of technology and social development is unsustainable. You know, that doesn't mean the supermarket's owned by the state. You know, it doesn't mean we're all told what to produce. And, you know, uh, and we've got to, I'm sure you are, and many people are, be very adept at saying the whole system needs to change, but that doesn't mean the kind of revolution like Mao, you know, we're all working in the fields and, and somebody, and, and that, that, you know, people are making these changes at an organic level on this. Gen Z, you said, already making, and this whole sharing economy, the whole ecosystem of media that exists around them. It doesn't have to be a state-led Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the the point of kind of the eco-socialism of the future that, you know, we talk about in these kinds of circles is that it's going to be decentralized. It's about community sovereignty, individual autonomy, care, compassion, the state facilitating communities, helping one another, looking after one another and realizing their potential. I mean, I was on the phone to a friend this week and we were talking about just the madness of work. You know, how is it how is it that we're all working so bloody hard when there's so many resources in the world? It's it's just crazy. And you were supposed that, to have all this time off. Yeah, this totally. was fifteen oh, hours a week. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's what he thought. Fifteen hours a week. And that's what Keynes thought. And so I think contrary to, you know, the communism past, that was still about shoring up power that was centralizing resources and distributing amongst people so that leaders could still shore up power. And eco socialism is not about that. It's about denuding power from the state. Yeah. It's about creating an economy and a form of social organization that isn't about power hierarchies, but is rather about care of one another and stewarding and, the planet. And the market can play a role in that because, you know, there are many much more equal societies which had markets, you know, they means of trade and exchange and distribution. We just mustn't be careful. You know, that can be, not always. If it's if every market was always heavily regulated, the currencies, the weights, the measure, the permission to have your fare in your local town, yeah. and this whole myth that any form of regulation is state control, libertarian dream, no, you wouldn't exist if you didn't have highly regulated markets to stop them uh, malfunction. And I think you know, that that I saw during COVID that kind of society you're talking mm -hmm. about. Well, Boris mm -hmm. Johnson, very good parties, had all this herd immunity bollocks that, oh yeah, let, let it rip, you know, like ever, ever had herd immunity with a novel coronaviruses, don't know it's serology. Uh, but people locked down before the government did. Why? Because they care. They looked after their neighbors. Mutually there was amazing, mutual, yeah, mutual, there was amazing sense of that untapped potential of, which you sometimes saw things like wartime, didn't you? The blitz spirit. Yeah. It is that, and I, as an example of this, I, you know, when lockdown began to break, I'd go on long walks where I live in, along the river in, in London. I started looking at the urban fabric and I thought, hold on. Yeah, some of this is a big bank and, you know, a royal arch or a church. But even that church is, then became a school or hospital. And that was, and there, there's this a bit built by, in Bermondsey, by pioneers in social housing and then the Octavia Hill. And then there's some schools and special green areas. And then there's a charity. And I just looked at the urban fabric and really 
70, 80% of it is built by small communities, individuals, associations, not by the state or a big corporation, but the fabric of life is actually run by <laughs> us and not, and not as nomad individuals, not as isolated consuming units, but working together with people. So it's like choirs, you know, and all that, that civil society potential, all that innovation, you know, social enterprises, mm. that's where I have my hope because it moves, it looks after each other. It moves upwards mm. very rapidly in a way that the state or a big corporation or big organizations can't control. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. But a part of why we've sort of failed to see that, why it takes something like COVID to be reminded of the fact that actually we are all kind of wired to take care of one another. Most of us are very, very willing is because of the stories that are told about us. So if you have this concentrated power amongst a very small sliver of elite society who are exploitative, who are extractive and not evil, who are really just fulfilling the role that the, they yeah. play within the system. And these are the stories that are told over and over and over again and not the stories of, you know, good people, not the stories of your average Brit, Briton, who is just fundamentally kind of like a morally superior person, all these kinds of things. Then we, we forget that that is our capacity. We forget that that is our potential. And I want to, I want to bring it back as well to like the, the media's role in sort of the proliferation, perpetuation, facilitation of this kind of exploitative uh, economy that we live in that now permeates all of our social organization, essentially. Because, I mean, you were one of the co-founders of Byline Times. You saw that despite having a pretty good reputation generally in the world, the British press, it just wasn't bloody good enough. You know, we spoke about monopolies and the monopoly power of Murdoch and all that. But by the same token, and not to fall victim to, well, the uh, left are looking for traitors, the right are looking for recruits. But nonetheless, yeah. on the other side, we have papers like, you know, The Guardian, um, um, The Mirror. I think The Mirror's done some pretty good stuff. Um, who have also allowed this to continue. Who have not focused on investigating because they are sort of complicit in a different kind of way. They protect this sort of, you know, liberal middle class that is sort of morally superior and aware of the, the, the identity politics and the problems of the world, but doesn't really want things to change too much. Yeah, I mean, so one of the reasons, but byline.com first, that was our crowdfunding site that took over 2016, exposed John Whittingdale's close proximity to the press. Four times they'd gone to him asking for comment about his dominatrix. Four times they hadn't published and four times he'd changed his policy on press regulation and the BBC. <laughs> that is the cozy cartel which exists, the media political class. And of course they have nominal left-wing people and they have, you know, their own, if you like, court jesters. They have their sort of angry voices they give a war for and then ignore investigative journalism. It's... Look, it always was problematic, the British press. It was the least trusted in Europe by the time I became a journalist covering phone hack, you know, 10 years ago. It has only got worse. It's also, I think this is why it's helpful. I think it's very important you say they're not evil. Hmm. They're just following their rational self-interest. Um, papers have been losing money for a long time, especially we have entered online. And, and that's why they went to celebrity and so 90s, Piers Morgan lived that and then phone hacking all the kind of stuff, privacy intrusion. Um, things kind of got worse with phone hacking exposed and Leveson inquiry. So they did exactly 
what I'd said oligarchs would do. It's obviously mainly run and owned by oligarchs, whether in Russian, like the Lebedevs or Wadhamir based in France or Murdoch based in the US. What do they do? Corporatism. They go to the government, especially during COVID. And there's one form of corporatism is if you don't help us out, we will run a bad story on you and show you some of the photographs I got on the safe. You, we can make or break you, kind of what they did to Theresa May. There's that coercive uh, element uh, that they hunt as a pack. And the BBC, unfortunately, follows these days because it's also being coerced and intimidated. But it wasn't, it's not for the audience anymore because the audience doesn't supply them with revenue. Uh, mainly, by the way, this is the effect of online Google, Facebook stole all the ads, which had always financed journalism. Journalism had never been financed by the cover price of paper. In the Times, the first independent newspaper in 1850, it was the ads that paid hmm. for journalism. The cover price paid for the cost of printing, not the content. That all went. So what do they do? There are more meetings, and we found undocumented ones, on Byline Times, between senior newspaper editors, especially his real boss, as Dominic Cummings called Boris Johnson's former employee, The Telegraph, than any other industry. I thought, what do they get? What does the political class? Well, Boris Johnson's gone to a million pound birth, the year birth of the Daily Mail. That's what he gets. They get cover. They get support from these papers. What do the papers get in return? We've documented it. There'll be more at the Hallett Inquiry. At least, probably more like 300, at least 200 million in COVID subsidies through this advertising and all in altogether, which was only given to members of the News Media Association, which includes The Guardian and The Mirror and The Independent. The Independent takes money from Saudi, sort of greenwashing. Uh, you ask them to comment it, they won't touch it because their salaries are being. So you know, the classic line, Upton Sinclair, you know, it's not difficult to uh, uh, force a man to say something his whole salary depends on it. They are whatever their good intentions, whatever individual journalists who are great, in all the, even in some of the Wyoming press, great journalists, their financial interests silenced from breaking the system. And where we, our strengths is that none of us want a job at the BBC or Guardian, or except we'll never get one. We are outside the system and we will show up one of the biggest sort of uh, breaks to reform in this country, one of the biggest scandals, the political media class, the revolting door, we call it, between journalists, spokespeople, and politicians, Gove and Johnson are both colonists, uh, and other newspapers are embarrassed. Now, they're forced to cover it when, like the trials going on, which we've been heavily involved in through Byline Investigates, which looked at the historic hacking, burglary, surveillance, uh, uh, and, yeah, and other forms of bugging of the papers, three trials this summer, the mail strikeout hearing about them, Dorian Lodge complaining that they were, you know, they was using spy cops to spy on her and following her and surveying her mirror group under Piers Morgan reach multiple. They've already accepted and paid off hundreds, but kind of not a final, a real trial with Prince Harry saying, well, look, you know, they've gone all the way, couldn't be bought off. And. MGF, NGF, the yeah, news group, which is the News of the World and the Sun, who's now lots of phone hacking that they denied it. It hits the public conscience when it needs, reaches that Stasi like level mm. of surveillance because they were surveying, they were hacking 27 members, so SPADs and ministers of New Labour, 27. 
let alone what they were doing with murder victims, their families and other celebrities. It wasn't let, they were doing senior police officers. They were over about 20 senior police officers they were hacking. So it, that comes to the public attention, the criminality or unlawfulness of those activities. But there's a whole other area, which you know, this ethical book, why should the standard of the newspaper, well, we haven't, we're not criminal, but are you any good? And economically, are you in part of a power cartel? Again, this corporatism between the state, big corporations, the state handing out bungs. The other, you know, the, I guess I have another billion. During COVID, all not noticed when they began this 200 million or so of advertising, you know, paid for advertising, kept papers afloat during COVID. Uh, they're also giving a VAT exemption on all their online publications. That's worth about another billion over three years. That's why Johnson can get a job for a million a year. That's a thank you for, because we know the males made much more out of Boris Johnson's government than a million. And we know that now that's ending, the Telegraph is finding it difficult to survive. Oh, hang on. Tell me more. Oh, well, the Telegraph's up for sale because it's, 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 it's bankrupt. I mean, it's illiquid. It's up for sale. The Barclay brother, uh, it's been sold because it's the cat crisis. They have. Yeah. Yeah. And then the discussions, who's going to buy it, Murdoch might buy it. Uh. Uh, I don't think monopoly, they can't do it again. Like they did buy the times. It's so clearly, uh, a monopoly issue and the you know, CMA should do something about it. So Paul Marshall is repaid to be the hedge fund that had made 350 million with his partner out of Brexit and persuaded Michael Gove to back, back it, who has a big share of GB News, has a, uh, owns through a charity, unheard is reportedly bidding it because it's kind of back to our why this crisis. In a crisis, the last thing you want is to be blindfolded. So imagine you walk down the street, you're going to be, you know, your car's about to crash, right? Or there's a, you know, there's a big incident on the motorway, you know, you've got to act quickly, you've got to avoid, you know, make sure you don't crash, make sure you don't run over anybody. And what the press does is put a blindfold on. And that aggravates the crisis. And so what these rich men do, once they get enough money and power, they go, oh God, Elon Musk, well, I've got billions on the richest man of the world, but these people on the internet really annoy me. They criticize me. I'm not really being heard enough. Right, let's buy Twitter. They are mm. desperate. No money doesn't bring stocks. They are desperate respect to reveal their genius, their wisdom, and their insights. Of course, all they do is reveal their idiocy and their selfishness. And that being a billionaire doesn't make you a genius. It makes you very lucky or born rich. Um, and rich people, rich men, nearly always, but not always, uh, want, they want to own the means of perception to hide what's really going on. Oh, that's such a great line. They want to own the means of perception. I love that. Um, so, I mean, the Byline Times is kind of acting as like a little sort of virus in the system, which is brilliant, sort of popping up everywhere. Big bar. <laughs> Attacking a big thing. A, big, a very big virus. A very big virus. And it is amazing. You've got, you know, 600 freelancers um, as part of this team and a, and a small core team managing it. It's an amazing enterprise. How has the industry responded to you because I imagine you're not particularly welcome. Oh my God, with hatred, we're trying to strangle us at birth. There's the, the hardcore, you know, when I first started Barline.com and we were looking at being at the mails, you know, uh, along with the Russian threats, the other threat actually allied around Whittingdale 
hacked, definitely hacked, and I won't say particularly diligent, the second bid for Murdoch's um, uh, bid for Sky, what's that, 2017-18, endless legal threats, harassment, this is the personal stuff, right? And then disparagement, mocking, superciliousness from the sort of moderate, less violent types. Um, and yeah, derision, what do they say? First they laugh at you, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they listen. Um, that took four or five years to change. It happened in the early days of Biolitite. This is crack, this can still happen. I was arguing with somebody from Civitas, so it's a conspiracy site about, we cover this stupid cat story, which turned out to be completely untrue about somebody identifying as a cat in a school. You know, just been leading their telegraph for days. Uh, conspiracy site, you know, Guido Falls conspiracy site, horrible things, take you meds, dukes, just, you know, they did to Carol Cadwall, they, what they tried, demean, marginalize, smear, categorize conspiracy sites. So they're doing that. Very difficult for them to do that now. They steal none of our stories. Or, or to be fair, GPE, the Sunday Times built a whole no load of investigations on the work we've done. And Fair enough. You know, great. We've been doing it for two years. They took it on a little bit further. Our research, the top Tory donors got COVID contracts. We did the top over 100,000. They did the millionaires and made a big deal of it. Went for comment. Great. You know, herd immunity. Every Jukes is mad. What's wrong with herd immunity? Well, they're talking differently now. Mm. When it came to Russian interference, people see things very different now. You know, I'm not saying Brexit was caused by Putin, but it was definitely a strategic aim of his, which he supported. And we've got doc documents to prove that galore now, and it's the accepted analysis um, of what happened with Trump and Brexit. You know, not the one cause is not one of cause. Uh, so, you know, it is in the end, troops were out. We don't, I mean, I like, we got trolled again last night by Robert Colwell, who's one of those big titles for Kevin Twine, head of the Tough and Strength, Tough and Street think tank, who revealed got money from the Koch brothers and then also, they got a donation from Richard Sharp. Anyway, it's all complicated. But he's saying, you utter fucking imbeciles, by my language. That's what we call it. This is the head of a big think tank, right? And you go, okay, thank you. Mm. We'll take that. You know, and, and it is, as you know, journalism, when it's matey, it's corrupt. Mm -hmm. And that's what Twitter was like when I arrived. Oh, they're all friends protecting each other. Oh, you know, how dare you up jumps at what? It, it is agonistic. It is antagonist. Um, you are always revealing a truth. Somebody, if you're doing your job right, somebody somewhere doesn't want you to know. And in our case, that's often what other media organizations who are powerful players in the political scene don't want you to know. Yeah, so they're haters. But I think if we're trolled less, they respect us. We've never been sued for years. Uh, tiny corrections of like 12 articles. There's one hedge bar graph we got well where the whole story is right but they try to make whole, the whole story on 75 percent of johnson's donors were hedge funds and city traders who represent 0.2 percent of the economy um wow. and, and, and yeah and you know so i think there's a grudging respect we'll never be insiders we don't want to be really i mean you know i love some things the guardian does i think it stifles good journalism by its sort of not even it's liberal centrist. I mean, it's kind of it's institutional inertia. Mm -hmm. It's a gang of people. You know, they could be right. That it could happen. Unless, you know, a Corbynite organization. I could happen the same if the organization is ideologically structured. One of our ways around that has been because everybody thought we were kind of Corbynite. We were like squawk box or 
the Bible either, which is better than school books. Um, we're not ideological. I, uh, we had a conversation with Owen Jones, our editor, and said, well, what do you represent? And she said to Owen Jones, well, we're kind of pluralists. We believe in pluralists. That's not an ideology. No, it is. It's a forum for ideologies <laughs> to discuss and coexist, right? Behind that has to be that. Behind, behind any informed political choice has to be accurate and information. And that's, that's if you like the extractive industry of journalism. Everything else is a tertiary product or a secondary product. Obviously, it's data, and then you get it to information. Then you've got to write it well, like you do, and turn it into knowledge. And then it becomes, well, over time, wisdom. But so many UK news organizations, whether left, right, or center, which I think is difficult on the Guardian, have taken it. What matters is where we sit in the ideological frame, what we argue. Because you look at the mail, and now the Telegraph, sadly, is one of the news organizations you probably remember. Even 10 years ago, I lost all it's an opinion generating. It's yeah. a, it is an ideology. It's to coerce the audience to believe in one thing. But by the times we have sports, a lot of sport, green, SNP, we have left wing Labour Party, we, you know, we have centrist, I imagine, uh, and Lib Dem, One Nation Conservatives, not from the far right very much, and probably not from the Stalinist left, right? No, they hate us. Both of those hate us. <laughs> I'm really happy with that. Mm. Um, we won't come out and say who to vote for. It's pretty clear cut. You know, I think I'm personally, it's my personal thing is I do not want the whole ideological agenda or a soil agenda by my time. I want several voices and I try to keep my own view separate. But I did criticize Jeremy Corbyn over his stance over Russian interference. Uh, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I made a big deal of that because I thought it was a lecture threat to the future. It wasn't about, and Brexit. I didn't think it was reversing Brexit. I didn't necessarily want another referendum, but I thought you've got to do something about this for future elections. And so I assume, therefore, I supported Boris Johnson, which is completely crazy. Our ideological position on Boris Johnson was very, very clear cut. We fight corruption, lack of transparency. We believe in basic equalities and human rights, all those things, and accountability, all those things. And true, like not lying, all those things he transgressed. How people, when they take that information, what they then decide to do with that information. Campaign like you, you shift from journalist to campaigner. That's great. You make a distinction. It is not immediate our job or other. If there are campaigns that come out of it, there may be various campaigns. You know what I mean? They're not. And I think that is the problem. British media, particularly the papers, is so ideological, so partisan. Nobody can see an organization that didn't become hyper-partisan we must be Blairite or something like that. We have, let me see two articles criticizing Corbyn in the entire history because we started early in 2019 and the election was almost underway and we just were following the truths of corruption and things like that and what Johnson had done. We've had dozens of articles criticizing Starmer's position. Formal point of transparency, accuracy, truth, fairness, democracy. Yeah. That's where we stand. And uh, then it's up to you guys, I think you as a punter, you as not as a journalist or campaigner, but as a voter to go in the balance of good and evil, where, where, where do I put my, mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, I, I struggle to think of any other way of navigating this back and captured. And I, I'll, I'll end on this because I was late, but 
This is something I've noticed, and it's really good piece by Matt Bernardini on our byline supplement, which is our substack. He said, actually, you know, when it comes to Putin, he isn't uh, twisting the FSB to do his agenda. He's doing the FSB's agenda. It's long They've forced Putin to isolate himself, to renege on these international agreements, to avoid all these money, you know, to basically isolate himself from the world economy. And that's what they wanted. Look at Murdoch. He had to stop, you know, criticizing Trump and the claim the vote was stolen because the audience were leaving them in droves. So they start amping up again, as in the Dominion um, uh, libel case about, you know, them fixing the vote. Had to follow their audience. People get caught in a bubble chamber, echo chamber, their audience. And what we're, while we really rely on our, you know, we're funded completely by our subscribers for three years now. Um, what and we listen to them, we won't be determined because that I think it could happen to some left wing organizations. Like, oh, if I if I move on from Corbyn or something like that, I'll lose my audience. Mm. We get people threatening to, they don't often do it to unsubscribe because they don't like we expose this cat thing. Well, I think you're misogynist because you're not fighting for you know gender critical ideology. I mean, we get these threats all the time. I'm unsubscribing because you've been too hard on Russia. And like, well, we can't. We're going to piss some people off in the media and in our audience. What do we believe is true? Thank you so much, Peter. This has just been wonderful. <laughs> what an astonishing uh, tre treasure trove of information. Thank you so much. My, uh, my final question for you is who would you like to platform? So I'm going to cheat on this. I remember 20 years ago, uh, Copeland was asked, Francis Ford Copeland, um, who you know, did amazing movies, Godfather, Apocalypse Now, Conversation. He said, what do you think about new technology? And, and maybe 25 years, that's the brilliant thing about it. Now, thanks to you, you can edit on. There is a girl, 15-year-old girl, somewhere in Wisconsin in her bedroom, who's the ne next best. I would like to platform that unknown person. There's another great, there's a great anecdote by Mark Twain. That there was a much better poet than Shakespeare in 16th, 17th century England. Lived in Birmingham and wrote this, wrote his first poem, went to the market, read it out aloud. Everybody laughed. He never wrote again. So to whoever's out there listening to this podcast, who has something to say, has an insight, has a desire for the truth, has a burning sense of injustice or a great sense of duty towards the public and making the world a better place. That's her like. Thank you so much, Peter. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.